the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Josh Pick is the Chief Investment Advisor with Aptus Wealth Management, a state-registered investment advisory firm. This program is sponsored by Aptus Wealth Management. Exposure to ideas and financial vehicles discussed should not be considered investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell financial vehicle. This information should not be considered tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult with professionals to see if any ideas expressed would fit their specific situation. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Securities can fluctuate and when redeemed may be more or less than when originally invested. Nice to be with you on another edition of the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. Bruce Hooley and Josh Pick. And you can get a hold of Josh and his team at Aptus by calling 614-917-1040 or setting up your free consultation online at aptuswealth.com, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. They're located in Lewis Center, just off Route 750, and they do a lot of work with people remotely, so you do not have to be from the Columbus area or in the Columbus area to have Josh and his team consult with you on managing your wealth. And Josh, as we talk here, uh, we are in advance of the next Fed meeting, about a week and a few days away. We are a few days away from the release of the latest inflation numbers, Consumer Price Index. I'm sure the Biden administration is hoping those numbers will go down. I don't I don't want to put you in the position to have to try to make a guess, but it looks like uh, the markets may be up this week for the first time in four weeks. Just kind of assess the... Uh, landscape as you see it and as your clients relate to you, what they're feeling now. Are they over the initial shock of 40-year highs in inflation? And does that still remain one of their top concerns? It's undoubtedly one of the top concerns. I mean, as you look at, particularly if you're on that one-yard line of retirement and you're looking off that, what we hear oftentimes from our clients is the cliff. Mm -hmm. We hear retirement described as, I'm standing on the edge of a cliff, I'm about ready to jump, and I've never done this before, I don't know how to pack a chute, but... Hopefully, uh, I got my uh, parachute packed right. Mm-hmm. And any variable added to that that might add some fear to it is pretty significant. And to say that we're now running at a three to four times typical inflation rate is very concerning. Now, whether or not the market's going to react favorably or unfavorably to when the Fed meets three weeks from now is yet to be seen. Um, I believe that they will raise interest rates again, but there's no question that the Fed is influenced politically, whether we want to admit it or not. And we have some midterm elections coming up and all that kind of stuff. So it's yet to be seen. But I think the overwhelming theme of everybody I'm talking to is uh, I'm terrified of volatility. I'm terrified of the market falling more. I'm terrified of losing more money. And what do I do from here? We've had about a 20 percent correction in the S&P 500 this year. Uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, has he sent any signals out about what he's going to do? And has he in the past actually foreshadowed what he actually does or could the verbiage coming out of Jerome Powell be not exactly what we see when the Fed acts Uh, I think all of those are are possibilities I mean it would be if we were looking at it from the political realm it would be the chairman comes out and says that I'm going to raise by three quarters of a percent I don't really care what the market does my job is to thwart off inflation um that that could mean from political perspective that I don't want to hurt the market too bad and I want an uptick before the election. So I'm going to say it's going to be three quarters of a point. When we actually meet, I'm going to say a half a point. The market will react favorably, then I win. 
Um, I'm of the belief that he's actually going to stick to his guns on this one. Uh, I, you know, we'll see. But I think we're looking at another three quarter of a point raise. I, I don't think inflation numbers are going to come back as gleaming and shiny as maybe the administration hopes. Um, you know, while simultaneously we're saying that we're trying to thwart off inflation, we're also seeing upticks in expenditures, which causes more inflation. So I feel like a little bit we're we're kind of treading water in glue rather than actual water right now. So help me understand the mindset of the market and what the market wants to see. I mean, the market, I would think, would want to see inflation under control. But the way to get inflation under control typically has been to raise interest rates. We've already had two back-to-back well, a back-to-back, two rate hikes of three-quarters of a point, this would be, you know, historic, too. That was the first time that had ever happened. Correct. So now to do it three times, obviously, would also be the first time ever. So what does the market want to see? Why does the market generally, because we're always speaking in generalizations here, why does the market react the way it reacts depending upon the size of the hike and the fact that it's hiked at all? There's a lot of variables happening here, but the two predominant ones are what does high interest rates do to businesses? And that's just kind of the dollars and cents of this. Mm-hmm. In other words, if I'm a company and I'm trying to grow and I need to go issue bonds or borrow money, six of one, half dozen of the other, the lower my cost of borrowing is, the more I can borrow, the more I can expand my business. So you'll see certain businesses really benefit from low interest rates because they can go out and borrow money and play that arbitrage or that spread between the cost of borrowing and how much they can make on their money. Um, But then there's another piece of it, and it's more of an emotional piece, and that is, you know, what does the market think that the Fed's going to do? And then it kind of starts already pricing in. And when I say the market, it sounds like I'm talking about it like it's a living, breathing animal. I'm Mm -hmm. talking about the people who are actually investing in the market that have the ability to really move the needle. They're determining what they think the market's going to do based upon what the Fed says they're going to do. Well, that's a little bit more of a fickle animal. We don't know what that's going to cause. But ultimately... Uh, if the Fed continues to raise interest rates, eliminate all the emotion out of it, it is going to have a negative impact on certain companies' ability to borrow, and that's not good for the overall economy, which is why it's called tightening, yeah. right? not expanding. Josh Pick and the Aptus Wealth Management Team host the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. That's what you're listening to right now. It re-airs Saturday at 2 p.m. Set your clock for it, Friday night at 7, Saturday afternoon at 2. They offer you a free consultation so you can understand some of these concepts that concern your wealth. Retirement is looming out there for all of us. And when you get there, you want to make sure that you have done everything you can do to have a plan and not get surprised and have adequate money set aside so that you can handle all the different aspects of retirement. And we have talked in previous shows about end of life care. That's a big one. Taxes and tax strategies are a big one. Josh and his team are on top of all that. Get a hold of them, 614-917-1040 or via the web at Aptus Wealth, A-P-T-U-S, Aptus Wealth. Dot com. All right. Do certain sectors seem better off if inflation is where it is? And are there some sectors that don't need to borrow money to expand and don't need to invest? Are they built out, so to speak? Or is it something that really does affect the whole entire market market wide? Well, there's a bunch of different ways to look at that, too. OK. Um, for example, you know, in times of uncertainty, you know, people tend to run to gold. So we're, we're having a lot of conversations with clients about uh, mostly client initiated where, you know, I want to go put all my money in gold because mm-hmm. I think it's all going to, to hell in a handbasket. Right. I got to put my money in gold. And and while that's a temporary fix, if you look at the history of gold, believe it or not, it's been second in the long run only to cash as the worst investment ever. Uh, but even if you look at it over the last, you know, we had some pretty volatile times over the last 
15, 20 years. So let's kind of rewind the clock back and say, well, from 1980 until today, which is called 40 years, how has gold fared? Well, the annualized rate of return of the S&P over that period of time has been about 12%, and gold's returned uh, about 2.8. So gold hasn't really got you where you needed to go. Now, if you look at very short time periods, and I think this is where clients are saying, yes, I understand that, but I want to just shift to safety for a short period of time, and then I'll go back into the market. When I always start getting into market timing, which historically hasn't been a great Mm -hmm. option, um, do I think that uh, in times of uncertainty, there could be a benefit to shifting some of your assets to safer categories like gold? It's certainly better than cash, but it doesn't come without risk. But to answer your question a little bit more detailed, you know, what companies typically do well in interest rate rake and rate uh, hike environments? Well, typically companies do well when they can make very subtle changes to their product and still make a lot of money, and they don't have a huge debt position. So one that's, I think we've talked about before on the show, and I'm certainly not suggesting that everybody had gone by this company, but uh, one would be Coca-Cola. Uh, Coca-Cola has a very limited debt position relative to its revenue. Very subtle fluctuations in the price that it charges for a can of pop make very significant differences just because of the sheer volume of pop that they sell. Sure. So if you have no real cost of borrowing, And as inflation rises, you can raise your cost of a can of Coke by a nickel and nobody cares. That can really be a good, you know, protection against these types of environments. Mm -hmm. But there are others that fall into that category, too. You know, Costco is another one that comes to mind that as people are trying to cut costs, they're going to run more to Costco. So, you know, there are companies that do well. What, What would be companies that don't do well? Well, if you look at a company that's in its startup type position and it has an extreme leveraged position, think of an auto manufacturer that's just starting out. They got to borrow everything to try and sell these cars. If you create an environment where your cost of borrowing is through the roof, and then your customers who are trying to buy goods and services off of you have a high cost of borrowing to buy those things, and then the economy goes the opposite direction, and they don't have the income to even pay them off, well, that's kind of the perfect storm for you know bad things to happen. Yeah, well, that calls to mind to me like the housing market because if you're building houses, you know, and the price of uh, lumber's going up. And the cost of borrowing money to buy a house is going up. Although we are seeing some adjustments, I guess, in the housing market now. Prices have soared. The numbers that I have in front of me, the, I guess, average price of a home in 2020 was 374000 uh, Now it's 525000 But mortgage loan applications are down 23% in September this year over last year. So they've declined by a quarter, which obviously makes sense because interest rates are high. But would housing be another one of those markets like you talked about with the auto industry? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you have two factors that are going into housing. They're a little bit different maybe than the auto manufacturing industry, for example. But uh, you have supply. People need a place to live. Yep. And then you have demand. People need a place to live, right? So if you have not enough houses for the amount of people that are trying to buy them, it almost turns into a frenzy where people are willing to pay almost anything because they need a place to live. Similar, you know, we can complain all we want about the price of milk. But people are going to continue to buy milk. They're going mm-hmm. to give up other things. Uh, but what you're seeing now is you're seeing that supply chain starting to catch up in the housing market. I don't think we're caught up yet. But if you couple the fact that the demand for houses is being met by a similar supply and interest rates are starting to climb, so that same payment on the same exact house is now $300 a month more, that will naturally have a pullback. Now, I think you said something else in there, though, that I hear often is, well, look how high they've skyrocketed. 
Uh, they have, but if you think, rewind the clock back to 2008, 2009, where housing, housing retreated by 30% or whatever the mm-hmm. number was. If you look at a 20-year number, have we really had a booming housing market, or has it been a gradual, then bust, then gradual, then excel to get back to historical norms? I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I'd be willing to bet if we looked at the last 20 or 30 years in some total, we're probably back to about historical averages. It just happened in a period of two years. Yeah, that makes total sense. Josh, pick Bruce Hooley with you, Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. Get a hold of Josh and his team to set up your free consultation. No obligation at all. You learn about how they invest and what they recommend for you. They'll do a personal assessment of your portfolio and help you understand some of these volatile issues out there in this time of inflation that we have not seen in 40 years. Their number is 614-917-1040. They're on the web at aptuswealth.com. A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com, located in Lewis Center, a little bit north of the 23270 interchange right along Route 750. So I want to go back to what you said about gold, and I would think if you have clients asking you about gold, they are people who are getting near the point of retirement. They have a nest egg. They're really worried about their nest egg getting slammed with inflation and declining 8% every year. And so they're looking for a place to go and protect their money? Where can I keep my money safe? Uh, Cash, as you said, is not good because you're definitely losing 8% there. So uh, is there a way, is there an avenue to take to guard against inflation? And I don't know what you would consider to be a short-term period. Is that a one-year, a two-year waiting period for all this kind of stuff to work itself out? Yeah, there's no perfect solution. Um, But let's address that client maybe that has already done the unfortunate pulling their money out of the market. Or maybe they never got in to begin with. Once COVID hit, they pulled out and they went never went back in because of the fear of, you know, the the volatility in the market. But now they're sitting, just like you said, they're sitting in cash and they're watching their money erode uh, via purchasing power. And what do I do? So let's give you a couple of options. Um, and we'll kind of do them in range of return and flexibility. So I'm going to address your liquidity concern. We, mm-hmm, talk, we mm-hmm. talk about duration as liquidity. So the easiest one, um, which it's shocking to me that this is better than the bank, but money market returns are getting far better than we've seen in decades. You know, it's not been uncommon for the last 20 years or so to see money market rates at essentially zero. You make nothing. Same as checking account rates and savings account rates, or maybe they give you a little 0.15% mm-hmm. or something to make you feel good, but, you know, your 1099 at the end of the year is six bucks. You're not really yeah. moving forward. Um, now we're starting to see those between 2 and 3%. So does that match inflation? No. But if you're sitting on the sidelines saying, I'm terrified of putting my money in the market, and you have 100000 bucks or 200000 bucks, or sometimes we're seeing really big numbers, uh, you know, 2.5% is better than nothing. Yeah, sure. Um, now, the benefit to that is, again, it's completely liquid. You put it in the account, you take it out tomorrow, you're good. Um, and we can help you with that one. So we can, you know, look across the country, see who has the best money market rates and invest for you. Uh, the other one that we can help with um, is a little bit less liquid. It has a year hold, but it is a what we call a buffering strategy. So essentially the way that this works is you have the ability to invest in the market. You have to leave it there for one year, but if the market goes backwards, you are protected up to a threshold. So let's think of it as like a downward hurdle. So if the market goes down 25%, the company that you invest in, in this case it would be an insurance company, will protect you against 20% of the decline. So if the market goes down 25, unfortunately, you you lose five. The market goes down 15, you didn't lose a nickel. But on the flip side of that, if the market goes up 15, you get approximately, and rates are always changing, so I'm dealing in approximations here, but you get approximately 13% on the up. So 
If the market does rally and we have 8% or 9% inflation, you just beat it handedly at 13%. If you're wrong and the market goes down 15, well, you're right where you started. You lost nothing. But again, the one downside of that is you have to keep it for a year. The easiest one for everybody listening is one that I can, I can help you with the first two. I can't help you with this third one is go to treasurydirect.gov. And that is the federal government's website where you can buy what we call I-bonds. And I-bonds have been around a long time, but nobody talks about them because really they're tied to inflation and inflation hasn't been anything. So why mm-hmm. do an I-bond? But now I just looked at the site uh, yesterday and I-bonds are paying 9.62% for one year. Now, wow. <laughs> it's pretty darn good, right? Yeah. Which tells you that the federal government believes real inflation is 9.62% because that's what it's tied to. So ignore everything else you hear. That's what the real inflation rate is. Now, here's kind of some caveats there. Uh, You have to hold it for one year before you can do anything. If you withdraw your money before five years, you lose three months interest. You can hold it as long as you want up to 30 years beyond that, just like those old E-bonds we remember Mm -hmm. from when we were a kid. But let's do the math on that. If you only hold it for 12 months and you give up three months interest, you still make nine months worth of Mm 9.62. That is the best game in town for sure. So why doesn't everybody put all their money there rather than these other two options that I threw out? Because you're capped at 10 grand per year. So if you're one of those people that is sitting with 100, 200, 300, a million dollars sitting in cash because you're terrified of the market, well, 10 grand really doesn't get you where you need to go. So you end up with an amalgam of kind of the upper two things. So I'm curious on that return, that 9.6%, let's say, uh, they want you to leave it in there for a longer period than a year. Am I reading that correctly? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So they want you to leave it in there longer. Do they pay the 9.6% for the entire time you leave it in there? No. So it's okay. reevaluated because it's hedged on inflation. Okay. So, yes, we have no idea what the interest rate is going to be a year from now. But I don't, you know, call me a pessimist, but I don't think that we're going to solve our inflationary problems in 12 months anyway. So I think if you're looking for a place to park cash for the next year or two, and that number that you're looking to park is 10000 or less, it's a pretty good good option. If you're looking to say, hey, I have an interest rate on my mortgage that's only 2.75, I could take this ten grand and pay off my mortgage, or I could put it in this. Well, now you can play the difference between the two. It's right. obviously up to you. So they do adjust the interest rate, but is it they, locked in for that first year? It is. I believe it's locked in for the full year. Don't quote me on that. It's locked in for at least the first six months. But again, it's tied directly to inflation, so there's no funny business going on here. Okay, very well. That's uh, managing risk, and that's what they're all about at Aptus Wealth Management. I say all the time that you have to have a plan for retirement, and you have to understand the plan. Because then if you do, you're not as apt to panic when things happen in the markets. And that's what Josh and his team are great at doing, helping you understand where the risk is, how to avoid that risk, how to have a strategy, not just be throwing darts at a dartboard. Aptus Wealth Management, 614-917-1040. Set up your free consultation on the phone or do it on the web at Aptus Wealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. We're essentially trying to talk about here about how managing risk and taking volatility out of the mix and those kinds of things. And when you're assessing uh, a stock, uh, I assume that uh, that's a big part of it. And I assume there are a lot of different layers to assessing risk, like debt positions and you know price, demand in the market and all those kinds of things. And Everybody fancies himself a great stock picker, but is there, uh, first of all, a simple way to equate how you guys would assess risk? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different metrics, but the, I think one of the easiest ones to describe, when people are talking about risk, what they're really talking about is volatility. 
And the reason they're talking about volatility or the amount that their stocks are bouncing around is that's what really gives us the heart palpitations. Mm-hmm. We could easily look at, you know, I, I brought up Coca-Cola just recently. We could look at Coca-Cola over the last, you know, 75 years and go, that's a pretty good, darn good company. It's been a pretty good stock. What's the risk? Do we really think Coca-Cola is going to go out of business? I hear that a, a, a lot is I could lose all my money in the stock market. Could you imagine if you tied your money to the biggest 500 companies in the United States and it went to zero? Your money's not worth anything at that point anyway, because we're talking about Armageddon. Yes. So it's not going to go to zero. What we're really talking about is what does my glide path or my trajectory look like? How volatile is this thing really going to be? Because I don't want to have 100,000 one day, 80,000 tomorrow, and then 120 the following day. That level of volatility is, met- is measured in something called standard deviation. And if you're an engineer right now, you're going standard deviation, deviation from the mean. I get it. I make cutting tools and I have to be this precise. It's a little bit different in our world. But similar concepts. So the way that we can easily benchmark what you're doing or a, a particular stock or investment uh, is to benchmark it off of the S&P 500. So compared to the 500 biggest companies in the United States, how volatile is the stock that I'm picking? So let's compare it to something that would be kind of, in my mind, gambling or crazy. Bed Bath & Beyond right now is a very popular mean stock. Yeah. I just got done telling you that the S&P 500 has a standard deviation of roughly 14. That would mean bonds in general, which are safer than stocks, probably has a standard deviation of about five or six, depending on which bond portfolio you're looking at. Uh, Bed Bath & Beyond right now is 122%. So you're taking, to take that chance where you just think this meme stock's going to take off, you are taking on, what is that, eight, 10 times the amount of risk as the S&P 500? And then you look at like, well, what about GameStop? GameStop's almost 1,000. So you're just, you might as well put your chips on red at the local casino and hope it pays off. So what, you know, an easy way to view this is when I'm picking stocks or I'm building, let's say we're building a portfolio, we want to pick a bunch of different investments and see if it's going to work for us. We want to compare what is the upside potential relative to some benchmark like the S&P 500 and then what risk level am I taking? Why is that important? Well, oftentimes we'll have people come into our office and they'll say, hey, I'm doing really well or my advisor's doing great. I'm very happy with them. I say, okay, and we plug in exactly what they're doing. And what we find is that although they've been averaging 10%, which is great, uh, they're taking on enough risk where they should have been averaging 15%. Mm -hmm. And if it goes the other direction, it just so happens that we've been in a great economy for the last 20 years, they're going to get hurt pretty bad. So the juice is not worth the squeeze, if you want to think of it that way. It's just you're taking on too much risk. Ideally, what we build in our office is how can we take on the least amount of risk possible for the most amount of return based upon how much bounce you're willing to tolerate. So if you tell us, I definitely don't want to lose more than 10% in any one year, I don't care what you tell me, that's what makes me really nervous, well, then that's the confines in which we build the portfolio. What I see today is people flocking to things like Bitcoin and then simultaneously running to gold and then buying meme stocks and then saying, well, you know, this new vaccine, I think I should run to Moderna Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to run here. You are gambling. Now, if it's worked, sometimes the most dangerous thing in life is success because sometimes we're successful in spite of ourselves. And if you ask anybody, you know, what's the most dangerous thing in a sport, most dangerous thing in the military, most dangerous thing in business is you get really lucky and you have a big win. And then you think that just because the sun rised and the rooster crowed at the same time, that somehow the rooster makes the sun rise. And you can make catastrophic mistakes. So part of my job is just bringing the reins back in. Yeah, is that uh, something that 
you know, you have a hard time getting people to understand if they have had good results to explain to them that, look, you know, your results are good, but your results should be better. I mean, sometimes, yeah. I mean, the the, the worst scenarios, or the, the most terrible scenarios are when people kind of get a little bit of egg on their face and they thought, well, I was super conservative. They told me I was super conservative and we find out that they have 90% of their money in, you know, small cap tech. Well, that that's not safe. Diversification, the word diversification does not equate to the word safe. All that means is much a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But unless your stuff is uncorrelated, meaning that if one goes up, the other one doesn't necessarily follow it and vice versa, um, you're not really protected against downside. And if, you know, if this was a television show and rather than a radio show, I'd show you tons of graphs on the importance of protecting against the downside as much as protecting against the upside, particularly in retirement. I know we've talked in the past about sequence of returns and how important it is to be consistent or, you know, you'll run out of money when you start drawing out funds. But um, ultimately, uh, I think we can bring people around to what makes the most logical sense. Well, I can vouch for that. I've been in. Uh, my wife and I have met with Josh and his team. And uh, the great thing about it is you do understand where you're going and how to get there. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can be, quite honestly, you know, under a mistaken impression. Not because you're uh, not really trying to understand the information, but because there are levels and depth to it that you don't know about. So get with Josh and his team at Aptus Wealth Management, 614-917-1040. Thank you for joining the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. I'm Bruce Hooley here with Josh Pick of Aptus Wealth Management, and they offer a free consultation to you if you would like to know how your portfolio is doing. Get a plan. Make sure that you're not caught unaware when it comes to saving for retirement and growing that nest egg that you've set aside. 614-917-1040 is their number. You can also set up your consultation online at Aptus Wealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. This show airs at 2 p.m. Excuse me. It airs at 7 p.m. Friday and 2 p.m. Saturday. So mark your calendar and be with us every week to learn more about the markets because this is definitely a volatile time and a time where you need to have a professional in charge of your portfolio. Josh, there's a term out there that I'm hearing more and more of, and I like to be informed. And so I want to know what is a meme stock and what qualifies a stock as a meme stock? Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Well, I think I've reached that point in my life where uh, I'm at an age now where I'm, I'm not exactly sure how they came up with the term meme stock, but and I don't know what Reddit is necessarily, mm-hmm. but apparently, um, and we had a conversation, I don't know if you recall, a long time ago, and it was about GameStop. Yes. And it was a bunch of you know kids essentially got together on Reddit, and they started saying, hey, I wonder if we all got together and we started pumping up this stock by buying it, how, how high we could make it go. And at the time, I think we were winding the clock back six months or 12 months ago, you called me and you said, hey, can we do an interview? I want to find out if there's anything to this GameStop thing. And I did a a very cursory search on GameStop's valuation at the time. And at the time, it was worth more than Delta Airlines. (laughs) Wow. A video game company. Sell video games. The video game store in the mall was worth more than Delta Airlines. And, you know, my response at that point was, well, what do you think it's, you asked me, what do you think it's going to do? And I said, I think it's going to tank. And, you know, obviously we've seen that and it's got volatility that'll break your neck. But it seems like that concept of what, if traders do it, is illegally called pumping and dumping, which is artificially boosting the value of a stock, getting out before the people that you're, you know, 
supposedly have a fiduciary responsibility to get out is somehow apparently now legal amongst individuals if they get together on a social media site. And we're seeing this with, we've seen it with GameStop, we've seen it with AMC, we've seen it with um, Bed Bath & Beyond, we've seen it with, there's been a a myriad of them. You know, while we can always, it's romantic, right? I can can buy something for 10 bucks and then it might be worth a thousand bucks and look, I finally stuck it to the man. Yeah. But let's not forget that there is a flip side of that. And while we may hear of that romantic story of somebody winning once, we cannot ignore the fundamentals of these underlying stocks. And the way that they become meme stocks is because they're incredibly out-of-favor companies. And let's not ignore that Bed Bath & Beyond, just on Polaris Parkway, shut down their store, along with thousands of other stores across the country. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do that because they're thriving. They did it because they're struggling. And because they're struggling, people are dumping their stocks. People are able to pick up those stocks and then boost up the value of the stocks by artificially adding demand for them. Uh, That's a risky business to get into. And I'm starting to hear certain folks telling me that they're starting to put pretty significant monies, you know, amounts of money in this. It's no longer the I'm going to put in 100. It's I'm going to put in 100,000. I'm a little uh, unfortunately pessimistic about how this is all going to turn out for people. Yeah, a meme stock uh, is defined by one of the uh, online investing services as uh, a company that has gained a cult-like following online and through social media platforms. So it didn't say anything on there about balance sheet or good cash position or lack of debt you know, exposure or anything like that, which are parts of how we typically have evaluated companies to determine whether they are good investments. Well, and on top of that, you know, let's just look at pure risk uh, or how we measure risk. There's a bunch of ways to measure risk, but one of them is standard deviation. And if you look at standard deviation, the amount of volatility or the amount of bounce that something has, you know, the S&P 500 is around 14, 15. You look at a company like Amazon, it's been a little bit more volatile, but it's had more upside potential, of course. It's around 30. And then you look at these meme stocks like GameStop, and it's about 1,000. So, you know, if you were going to bet your buddy for a beer, on a meme stock, that's one thing. If you're going to bet, uh, you know, the golf match and who pays for golf on a meme stock, okay, fair. But you're going to bet your million-dollar retirement investment portfolio on a meme stock? You're nuts. You're absolutely crazy. You're not paying attention to anything that has to do with future profitability of a company. You're basing it purely on what's hot today, not what's going to be surviving in the future. So take me through a discussion uh, that you might have with someone who says they're interested in a company. Uh, It may be a relatively new company, new public offering, and they're interested in it because they're a consumer of the product. They really like the product and they think the product has an upside. Uh, That's an important factor, no doubt. But what kind of evaluation process would you go through with them to determine whether their individual liking is actually well-placed with a company that's solid and well-positioned for growth? That's a very difficult question. The reason it's difficult is because the newer the company, the less the information we might actually have on them to research. Now, obviously, if we're talking about a publicly traded company, that's a different conversation. So let's eliminate all of the private placement type crowdfunded companies that have not hit a uh, kind of a national register like the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 yet. So let's look at the companies that have done that. Uh, one that comes to mind would be Under Armour of maybe 15, 20 years ago. It's interesting you say that because when they decided to start selling shoes, I was very excited about investing in them. I didn't, 
but I really wanted to because I thought, ah, they're perceived as cool. They've got an established market share, and now they're adding shoes, and they're probably going to take off. Or, you know, here's one that, uh, you know, was pretty new but very popular. It's within the last 20 years. I remember the first time I walked into a Chipotle. Mm-hmm. And at the time, now it seems very normal that we have places that specialize in one type of food and it's all, you know, much more fresh ingredients and I get to pick what I want. You know, now you have all these different companies that do that. But at the time, it was pretty revolutionary. It was. And I remember walking in and going, this place is going to go crazy. It's going to take off. So, you know, I don't think that's bad to invest in. Um, but r- just remember this. If you look at most uh, investment portfolio allocations, meaning, you know, you have all the pretty colors on the graph. Mm-hmm. These types of companies that we're talking about at the time were small companies. It's okay to have a percentage allocated to your small company, but we're talking about a minority percentage. Where it gets, uh, for example, if you're in a growth portfolio, you might only have 5% in small company. So that means you have 95% of your money in other stuff. Mm -hmm. I encourage that type of investing. I think you should have a passion for what you invest in. You should have a a belief, a backing um, in what you're investing in. But that doesn't that doesn't move the needle on your whole portfolio. So you better have other metrics other than I walked into a Chipotle and I think it's going to take off to pick investments that you can be sure are going to last in the long run. Speaks well of your instincts because the first time I walked into a Chipotle, I thought there's no way the chairs are uncomfortable and uh, the food offerings are too limited and I didn't see how it would make it. And it's obviously popular because when you go in there, it's really interesting to see who all's in line? You'll see all different ages. You'll see all different different ethnicities. Uh, it, they've they've really done a great job. So that speaks well of your uh, your instincts in that regard. Josh, pick Bruce Hooley with you. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. Josh is uh, the man behind Aptus Wealth Management, and it's a firm located in Lewis Center, Ohio. They do a lot of their clients online, and that's very easy for you to do. We uh, definitely came out of the pandemic all pretty well-versed in Zoom and other online platforms. So the fact that you may not be geographically here does not mean that Josh can't help you manage your portfolio. 614-917-1040 to get to know him and his team. You can also set that up online. Free consultation, no obligation at 614-917-1040. I think there's something romantic, as you said, about... uh, Picking a stock when it's ten dollars and then seeing it go up to a hundred or seeing it go up to a thousand, uh, but more people get burned in the uh, lust for that than others. And you showed me a list of the top stocks in the world in 1989, and we compared it to the top uh, stocks in the world now, and it's pretty remarkable how much change there is in there. What did you find instructive about looking at those two comparisons? It, well, one's interesting in that if you really think about this. You know, I know it seems like we've been in the United States forever, but this is a pretty new experiment. I mean, really, we, we got a couple hundred years under yeah. our belt, really, right? And if you rewind the clock back to 1989 and you look at the top six, four of the top, top six companies by market capitalization were Japanese companies. Today, five of the top six are U.S. companies. So think of just even in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, how much market share we've gained. The other thing that jumps off the page to me is, and I, you have it in front of you, mm-hmm. I don't. What is the market capitalization of the largest company in 1989? I'm guessing that it's going to be about... Somewhere uh, around 70. That's uh, number two and number three right there. 
I don't so here see. we go. So number three is around seventy billion. Yeah. So if we look at number three from today, we're well, well over. We're almost two trillion bucks. That's Microsoft. Mm-hmm. So let's just say that you know there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of proponents of just buy the index, and you would say, well, let's say we just bought the index over the last thirty years. How did we do? Well, the number three company went up by, let's just call it. I mean, I don't even know how many fold that is. What is that, 30 fold? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, You know, just riding the tailwind served you very, very well in the United States. The other thing that jumps off the page to me um, is none of the companies, as best that I can tell in my cursory look, none of the companies in the top 20, 30, you know, 1989, are any of the top companies that are in the top 30 today. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of people running around saying, I know what the next thing's going to be. Maybe. Uh, but it's a hell of a pick. I, we were talking offline before we started. In 1989, uh, how would you have ever forecasted that the next best thing, the next big thing, is going to be this online platform where everybody posts their pictures called Facebook or now Meta, right? Yep. That's number nine. And then we're then you would say, well, how's that company going to make money? Well, honestly, nobody really knows. But it's going to be this, you know, online ads and stuff like they don't manufacture anything. It's no. just going to be repurposing of ads that. It's gibberish to the the person in 1989. So this tells me a couple of things. One, let's look at the negative side of this list. And the negative side is this. Japan had more representation in the top 20 in 1989 than the United States did. Matter of fact, they had more representation in the top 20 than any country in the world. Japan was the powerhouse in 1989. Now, they are very slimly represented, uh, barely represented. Uh, They are beat out by many other countries. And the United States is the most represented in the world by far. So how in a matter of 30 years did a company like Japan go from the big dog to barely even a puppy on this list? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it was a result of some really poor decisions at the top level of government via spending and interest rates. So I tell that as a cautionary tale. And there was other factors, obviously, but as a cautionary tale, to what we're currently looking at with administration changes, our increase in debt. I think sometimes we talk about, yeah, we have debt, but that's just the way that governments work, and we don't even really understand. That debt can catch up to you, and it can knock you off the podium of the number one country in the world. We've seen it with Japan just simply from 1989 until today. Build that out a little bit more for me in terms of what Japan did, because these are privately held companies. Uh, Why are they not immune from these companies in Japan for the top six in 1989, why would what the government of Japan did have that dramatic of an impact on them as private companies? While companies are private and the government certainly can't control them, they can affect the factors surrounding them. So, for example, the taxation of corporations does have an impact. There is a threshold where you can overtax corporations to the point where they cannot be as productive and profitable. The flip side of that is you need people to buy your goods and services, whatever those are, whether it's online advertising or it's cars, you need people to buy them. And if the people of your country are not flourishing in cash vis-a-vis wages that are keeping up with the inflation rate of your country, well, then they can't buy stuff. And that has a negative impact on, obviously, those privatized companies. And the list goes on and on and on, which is why we often talk about the lost decades of Japan, where their stock market essentially over a period of 
a decade, almost two decades, didn't really do anything. You weren't rewarded for taking the risk and investing in stocks. And I think that's the huge concern of the American consumer today in investing in the stock market is what what does the future hold? Um, The flip side of that, though, is if you look at American innovation and this great American experiment, and we oftentimes hear about, you know, oh, it's the millennials or mm-hmm. it's the gen whatevers. And, you know, it's, it's not like it used to be. Right. The reality is the American ingenuity has created companies on this list that are in the top 30. Think of this. Tesla didn't wasn't even a thought back 40 years ago. Correct. And here it is number six with that almost one trillion dollar market capitalization. How many jobs, opportunities, et cetera, has that created? Amazon. That that guy that everybody laughed at when he started a bookstore out of his garage online uh, is number five. Google, two kids in college, started a company where they said we can optimize a search engine. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. So who knows what the future is going to look like moving forward? But what I do know is that the only predictable way that you can consistently reach retirement. Now, I'm not talking about get ultra wealthy and knock the cover off the ball. and Because remember, the guy that started Amazon that's now worth all this money that everybody hates for People laughed him out of the neighborhood darn near for what he started. Was that a logical, pragmatic decision? I would say probably not. Put Mm -hmm. all your chips on red and start an online book retailer? Are you crazy? Our job is not to determine how we're going to find that next company that's going to take your 10 bucks and turn it into a billion. Our job is to predict how can we take your $100 savings per month and get you to the goal that you want to go to in a very predictable fashion. And that's through evaluating stocks based upon how much they actually produce, their debt ratios, uh, what's the price-to-earnings ratio that you're buying it at, what's the economic conditions of the economy at the time. That's predictable investing. And unfortunately, I think sometimes we get confused with, um, yeah, but my buddy did this and got <laughs> rich. That's not predictable. Uh, you also have the other buddy that we seem to ignore that was a moron and did something and it didn't work out for him. And by looking at this list, if I just said guess and pick, there's no way you could be right because there's no replicated num- names on this list. There's no way that you could pick the number one person on the list because it's not on the other list. No, no, that's absolutely true. Josh, pick Bruce Hooley with you here on the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. Apple's number one on that list now. So I'm trying to think back, 1989, what was Apple? They had uh, the personal computer. That's all they had because the only other product that I can think of was like, what's second in line? When did they take off to get to number one on this list? And I thought it was the iPod, which I think the iPod was like their first thing. The iPod wasn't released until October of 2001. Mm -hmm. So the 1989 starting point, you know, they, they have the Mac before that, but they're not on the list of the 1989 companies that are top 30 in market cap, but they're number one now. They've obviously innovated a ton with, you know, phones and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it does speak well of American ingenuity because Amazon's up there, Tesla's up there, on and on, Microsoft's up there. So are we looking at a horizon where there are other things? And I'm sure that there are people in, you know, the Biden administration who would say, sure, green energy is there and, you know, battery powered cars and different sources of energy and those kinds of things. What, how do you start, how, how is there a way or is there a way to see the Apple coming on the horizon, the next Apple coming on the horizon? Well, there's there's funds that uh, focus exclusively on what is the next biggest thing. And one of the ones that, you know, is pretty popular, I would say, is, you know, Ashton Kutcher has his, his kind of fund that he uh, lays out there. And if you'd say, well, who's going to be the next big one? 
he's talked very openly about this. He said, you know, for every 10, 10 that we pick, one we're hoping takes off. We're hoping we break even on another one, and then we're going to lose all our money on the other eight. Mm. So it's a difficult business to That's say the risk, to, to say the least. Now the hope is that that one that takes off is a hundred x return, yeah. and it turns out to be a really good fund. But even the best funds aren't returning much more than you know double digit returns. So how do you pick? That's a really difficult decision. Now, can you pick a company like Apple that is now? established and look at its balance sheet and say, what's it going to be able to do moving forward? And is it priced correctly? Well, that's the, that's the Warren Buffett approach. Warren Buffett's sole approach is buying companies at reasonable prices that have a strong barrier to entry. They're going to be around a really long period of time. Now it's interesting on that list, you know, Berkshire Hathaway's in the top 10. So clearly that approach is a pretty good one because the company who takes that approach on investing happens to be one of the biggest market cap companies in the world. So I'm going to ignore the how can I pick the next big thing, and I'm going to focus on how can I pick the current thing that has a tremendous amount of upside potential and roll with that. Get with Josh and his team for your free consultation, 614-917-1040, or you can do it online at AptusWealth, A-P-T-U-S, AptusWealth.com. Another thing that I noticed looking at these two lists is that we didn't have very many healthcare companies on the 1989 list. Now we have a lot of them on the list and we've talked about end of life care and things like that. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not giving advice, but uh, the medical realm is certainly, I think it's inarguable. They've grown exponentially since 1989. Yeah. And we're a very unusual country in that respect. And I encourage everybody to look up why we're unusual, but let's just say that we're one of the few countries, actually one of two, I believe countries in the world that allow advertising for prescription drugs on television. I think the other one is, uh, and again, I don't quote me on I think it's New Zealand or Australia. All their countries don't even allow it. So what you're seeing is, in that respect, the government is allowing, we were talking about Japan, the government is allowing a tailwind, for whatever reason, for pharmaceutical companies. Now we could argue that we have some of the best healthcare in the world. So maybe that's a positive, maybe it's a negative. Um, green energy you brought up. Well, the government is getting, obviously, behind that in the way of subsidies and a whole bunch of other things. But what's interesting is if you look at that list, you look at Apple and you look at Microsoft and you look at Google and you look at Amazon and Tesla, the government hasn't been involved in any of those companies. If anything, they've been almost pushing back on them. I mean, Microsoft had to deal with, you know, anti-monopolistic type procedures back in the, I believe it was in the 90s. So, you know, in spite of government restriction, these companies have risen to the top. But in spite of government tailwinds, None of the other companies that you mentioned, while they've gained a lot of share in their gigantic companies, they haven't reached, they haven't busted through the, you know, the top six, the top seven. So while the government can provide tailwinds and headwinds, they cannot change the overall innovation of the economy. And I think that's one place where Japan kind of fell behind is their innovation kind of fell backwards. If you look at companies like, and and now I'm really shooting from the hip, but companies like Toyota, Honda, um, they were the cars for a Mm -hmm. long time. They went from nothing, 13 inch rims to really the most reliable cars on the road, and they gained a tremendous amount of market share. And Toyota is on the list from 1989. Fast forward, it's not anywhere on the list in the top 20 today. And that's because companies like Tesla are now leading the charge in innovation where they're just doing the same old, same old. So my hope is that, and this isn't an investment conversation, well, it is an investment conversation because it's going to make a difference, but my hope is that whatever the government decides to do will promote innovation and not hinder our ability to innovate. Uh, Again, the takeaway from investing 
It's not a Rubik's Cube. It can be solved. But if you're trying to pick the next big thing, you're playing a losing game. You're, you're just gambling. Well, and the other thing that steps out to me is, like, we talk about risk, and we always, I picture in my mind, I picture a, a small company trying to make it. GE and IBM are very high on this list from 1989. They're not on the list now. So, I mean, they're still around, but is there a risk in people having the attitude, I'm just going to park my stock in a big company and leave it alone because that big company's never going away? A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a reason why mutual funds and index funds get the bulk of investing today, and that's because picking 10 stocks and hoping that you're right is not as predictable, right? But I, I'll, I'm going to now kind of attack the swing opposite end of the spectrum, and that is mutual funds have gotten a little bit crazy too, and that mutual funds now, well, they have 7,000 stocks in the mutual fund. Well, yeah. how are you going to do that? Well, I mean, you're just, that's a shotgun approach, that that doesn't require any research. Just buy the S&P 500, call it a mutual fund at a 1% fee. So we can't do that either. And the answer is what is true diversification and also making some stances and actually doing the evaluation. You know, even Berkshire Hathaway, uh, which we've mentioned several times, they'll, they'll oftentimes say, you only need one stock. I only own one stock. I'm yeah, but that one stock owns over 100 companies. Right. So it's, it's really not. Um, the, the trick is, what is that secret sauce of diversification? And I think the answer is, be diversified enough that not one single window pane being broken will take you out, but not so diverse that you can't have upside potential that's beyond what the norm uh, would be for the overall index. Makes a ton of sense. Josh Pick and the Aptus Wealth team are on top of it. Let them steer you through the murky waters that are out there right now with high inflation and with high food and gas prices and volatility in the markets. Get a hold of them for your free consultation, 614-917-1040, 614-917-1040. You can also set that up on the web at aptuswealth.com. Josh, we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Thanks. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.